Now, uh, one of my concerns is that uh, uh, this controversy about uh, uh, transgenics and biotechnology has gotten out of balance because there is some who, in many countries, ideologically, uh, are afraid of the private sector. I think we need the private sector. We need to work together. But we also, in the public sector, have to continue to have good research programs using molecular uh, genetics, biotechnology. Uh, who's going to train the scientists for industry and for uh, other sectors of society? The universities do, but they have to have research monies to carry on viable programs. So I think that this is something that we need to refocus on. And then look at how the, wor how we the world spends its money. $900 billion a year going into armament and military. And yet we can't build roads in countries that are fertile seedbeds for all kinds of planting of extreme different kinds of isms, including terrorism. We've got to change this and get more funds coming into uh, agriculture for Africa especially, but also for still parts of Asia. If you young people want peace and tranquility for your families, it won't be built on human misery. And look at what we haven't done in education. At the present time, adult illiteracy, we've got nearly 900 million adults, and two-thirds of those are women. And the women has the greatest influence in most of those countries on what happens to the children and the future generation. And there's still 120 million uh, primary or children that should be in school, not in school. What waste of talent. And in closing, let me say to uh, you students, uh, the world is typified by the standard of living here in the USA the levels that have been reached at the present time compared to back in my boyhood. It's a different world, and keep it that way. But, uh, uh, you know, ease and security are deceiving sometimes. It destroys initiative and imagination and creation, creative ideas. And to you young people, I want to ask how, ma how many of you are really utilizing to the high degree the potential talent that you inherited from daddy and mother and grandparents and great-grandparents to develop those skills, whatever discipline you were going into. Are you satisfied with mediocrity? I hope not. The world needs leaders, leaders. So reach and stretch for that star. You'll never reach the star, but if you stretch your 
potential capacity enough with the help of your professors and your uh, associates, you'll get some stardust on your hands. And with that as a catalyst, you'll be surprised what you will be able to do for you, your family, the community, the state, the nation, yes, and the people of the world. And finally, you can't build peace on empty stomachs and human misery, as Lloyd Boyd or the first director of FAO said many years ago. Thank you all very much. This is Jenner. We are doing something a little special. Uh, we're going to do a two-part series on the Green Revolution. The voice you heard in the lead-up there was of Dr. Norman Borlaug. He's widely heralded as the father of the Green Revolution. Uh, how the world of agriculture was just radically transformed uh, in in the face of the challenge of uh, growing population and food scarcity uh fascinating guy if you don't know his story please uh please check him out i'll put something in the show notes there uh, so today i am talking to kevin fulta he's a professor in the horticultural sciences department at the university of florida and he is host of the talking biotech podcast I'm super excited to get this guy on. Uh, I've been a fan of his for years and feel very fortunate uh, that he took the time to sit down with me. So this is part one of the series. I do have another episode coming out on this with a different special guest who I'm going to keep a surprise for now. Uh, but yeah, and then if we pick this up sometime in the future, if we do more... Uh, ag bio stuff which i assume we very much will then we'll just kind of continue that down the line but uh, this is part one of two here is my conversation with kevin folta all right on the line i have professor kevin folta kevin welcome to the show hey thanks for having me aboard <laughs> It's uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, I've been uh, I, lo I look up to you a lot. I've been following you since uh, pretty much since the 2015-2016 thing where they were just dragging you through the mud. That's really when I became aware of you. Uh, and I've been following you ever since. But I literally just found out about your podcast like the other day when I was searching for uh, people to interview. <laughs> so I, I'm ashamed to say I'm a latecomer. Uh, to talking biotech, but uh, I think I'm maybe like the last, maybe dozen and a half deep into the into the backlog now. But uh, yeah, it's it's really fantastic. I love your show. Well, that's great. You know, it happens all the time, and it really is disappointing because 
it does have such a broad swatch of content now for four years plus. And I always find somebody new who says, I wish I would have found this three years ago. So you're not alone. For those who aren't familiar with you, I guess just take a couple minutes to, to describe who you are and what you do. Well, um, maybe tell you why I do it. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I was excited about the idea of technology. And whether it was computers or electronics or DNA, I was really excited. And back when I was a kid, I was 10 years old when they first started making insulin from a human gene and bacteria. And I remember reading the books back then. And I used to like the old genetics texts. And I used to read those things. And all of this was starting to come together that you could use DNA and DNA-based technology to change medicine and to change agriculture. And it was so optimistic back then. It was um, in the late 70s, early 80s, and people were excited that it was going to happen. And so I was very fortunate to have great teachers through high school and college and great opportunities through a master's degree, PhD, postdoc time, and a great job at Florida where... I've really had the opportunity to not only participate in cutting edge research in a couple different areas we can talk about if you're interested, but also have the opportunity to talk to people about how to communicate science and how to share what we do. And so um, I, I, I do all these things every day just because I want to uh, leave this rock a little better than I found it, but um, really help people with technology. That's uh, that's amazing. And uh, what what you're doing uh, online is I, I really consider you and your colleagues kind of a counterterrorism task force, just <laughs> defending, <laughs> defending the science from these just totally inept, disingenuous, dishonest people who it's, I don't know how much you want to talk about that. No, but I, I, but, but, it drives but me insane. We could talk about that point is that um, I frequently have referred to these kind of movements as terrorism, because what is terrorism? Terror terrorism is the use of violence or coercion to push an ideological or religious ideal. Exactly. And, and that's exactly what they're doing here it, in places like um, the, the folks who are opposed to climate or vaccination or genetic engineering or um, you know, there's dozens of different areas where we see science denial. It is a, um, it, it is very much an ideological stance where they use these methods of coercion to, to scare people about their food and about their planet. And I think, um, my job in that is to help, um, correct the record. And of course yeah. that opens you up to all kinds of targets personally. But the idea is, is to help set the record straight with science. It's amazing. And it's, it's so needed. And which is why I, I felt compelled by the cosmos to start this show and say, like, Hey, I, I have groups of friends. Let's see what I can get out there. So <laughs> I, you're an inspiration, sir. <laughs> well, it means a lot. It really does. Because, you know, a lot of times when I do the podcast or I write something, I throw it out. You know, I, I feel very much that it's um, kind of like putting a message in a bottle. I don't have this um, idea that anybody really cares what I think or, you know, anticipate that anyone 
you know, even listens to the the podcast. And I do it with that kind of feeling. And when I, and what's really amazing to me is, you know, we're, we're not a big podcast, but I'm getting three to 5,000 downloads a week right now. And oh, that's that pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. I am. I am loving the show. I can't wait to get, go back in time, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> well, there's really good fun. ones that if, you know, if you really wanted to do some uh, ideas about where to start, I love mm -hmm. one number 143, where uh, Dr. Jan Lowe talks about the orange flesh sweet potato for Africa and how yes. kids just by eating an, a sweet potato, that's not like we have. Theirs is mm -hmm. white and men won't eat an orange sweet potato because it's supposed to feminize them or, you know, there's a lot right. of, you know, there's a lot of BS around that, but they're getting kids to eat it and they're seeing changes in children's vision because of correcting vitamin A deficiency. And those stories are fantastic. It's uh, those, the uh, success stories are really, are really uh, amazing around the world with, you know, the, the introduction and acceptance of these technologies. There's so, there's so many lies and so much misinformation out there about this. I'm wondering what, what's, what's your favorite in terms of absolutely just worst morally reprehensible, <laughs> disgusting lie. Like what's your favorite one? Well, yeah, so there's a cut. So I guess you could answer that from the standpoint of what is the most outrageous one you've heard or what is the one that's done mm. the most damage. And I think let's start with the second one. The one that causes the most damage was the 2012 paper by the Seralini group, one where they showed the rats that had all the tumors and yes. that paper being released that morning in Kenya later that day, they banned the use of genetic engineering. And here we are seven years later, and they just reversed that ruling um, within the last few weeks. So here wow. was a paper that was bogus from the beginning that people criticized up and down, yet reverberated through the developing world in ways that because certainly they're very suspicious of the industrialized world. And they should be, right. you know, oh, well, yeah, you know. Uh, here they come offering us everything again. You know, if they don't want it, why do we get it? But it shut down um, the implementation of maize that resists viruses and so many other technologies that could benefit the poorest farmers in the world. And, uh, you know, my heart's going out to those folks because they, they finally are starting to have that reverse. So that was the most damaging paper that it, it, it is the equivalent to the Wakefield paper that stopped people from vaccinating their children. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. It's uh, really, really hard when you think about the actual real world suffering that a couple of charlatans have, have managed to accomplish. And it's, it's just insane to me that they're, they're sticking to their guns too. I mean, they're, they're not, they're not stepping down by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know what Wakefield's up to these days. But. Oh, well, Wakefield's uh, hammering checks, traveling the world, talking about how vaccination is horrible and how he's been outed. And you know, the guy's a pariah in his own mind. Um, the Seralini paper, he still stands by that. But it's been um, they've they've redone those experiments and by four independent groups and showed that you could not repeat his results. But that picture is at every anti-genetic engineering rally. It's on mm -hmm. all over the internet. 
the, 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 the most outlandish thing I ever heard was a guy from who was a professor at Purdue named Dr. Don M. Huber, Dr. Don J. Huber. I work with, he's a good guy. <laughs> Dr. M. Huber. He, um, <laughs> wrote a letter in 2011 to the agriculture secretary, Tom Vilsack at you know, the United States department of Agri agriculture department, Tom Vilsack, the big cheese sends him a letter saying that he's identified a secret pathogen and that the pathogen kills people and hurts people, uh, causes all this disease. It kills crops. It causes stillborn calves. And he used to go everywhere in the nation and talk about this. And, uh, he came to my town to talk about it, and the audience was appalled. They were scared. They were blown away by this. And during the question and answer session, I asked him if he would give me a sample, and I could sequence the DNA of it and give him all the credit, and it would solve the crisis. <laughs> and, and he locked on the brakes like you could hear the, the like that sliding across the record needle sound <laughs> yeah and he because he had no he that said, well, i would love to do that but has no genetic material <laughs> oh, okay. so, yeah oh that's hysterical <laughs> so but if you look on the internet you can but you can find lots of evidence of that on the internet that back in 2011 he had people scared to death of this uh organism that science that he was the only one who could identify and that he had collaborators in china and you know that's like great you're sending an organism to china that can destroy u.s agriculture <laughs> but he he um oh, he was but he's still out on this he's still out on the circuit talking about his stuff and uh um he doesn't talk about that anymore because it was just too little too out there <laughs> That's that that is too wacky. An organism that doesn't have genetic material. Uh, <laughs> it's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would have okay, been revolutionary, so... and I was glad to help him with that. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, and that's and that's kind of the way to to defeat these folks is it isn't to call him a liar. It isn't to get in his face and say, "Show me your data." It's to say, "How can I help you resolve?" this crisis and do it in a big yeah. public way. And, and basically it was great. Cause the whole room, it was like, you know, in a tennis match, how the ball goes back and forth and all the heads move. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you know, I'd love to help you with this. Will you share it? And all the heads looked over at him. <laughs> it was great. Uh, that's awesome. So uh, fun follow-up of, of the stuff that you hear from the anti crowd. Which which one of the things, the tropes or concerns do you think is the least wrong? The so least wrong. Yeah. So it, it's somewhat of a valid concern. They're just getting it wrong. Well, no, <laughs> but, well, I think they get a lot of things right. I mean, there are definitely concerns that we have and things that uh, that they point out. I think they extrapolate them a touch. But things like um, when you use herbicide tolerant plants meaning you can plant the seeds for like corn or soy and let it grow for a few weeks with all the weeds and then you drive over the top and you spray it with an herbicide that's pretty gentle stuff in general it kills the weeds but leaves the crop and um, that was such a spectacular technology that was used so intensively on uh, corn soy um, sugar sugar beets um, and a few other crops that uh, canola a big one that weeds started to evolve around that herbicide 
And farmers that would use this technology year after year after year would evolve these weeds very quickly that now take over the fields and require us to escalate the chemical um, arsenal. And they're exactly right when they talk about that. And the same thing happens with the insect protection, that uh, BT, which is a protein that kills larvae of specific insects, very specific, and only kills the ones that feed on the plant. So this is really great stuff. Um, we see pockets of resistance. And the mistake we made was using only one kind of protection for the plant. And so when you talk about the anti-folks, those are the things that they get right, and those are the things that they should focus on. And really say, you know, how did we get here? And mm -hmm. my answer to that is, well, the anti-folks made it so hard to commercialize many different products that we had, were stuck with one. So it's kind of their fault, but they are right when they make those criticisms. Yeah. No, I, I, thought, I thought that was important to, uh, to get in there as, you know, the whole in intellectual honesty thing uh, to give both both ends of that particular spectrum so well, 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 let me ju jump in there though this is it's not yeah. both ends of the spectrum it's really one spectrum it's a science spectrum and sometimes they get it wrong and sometimes they get it right you know broken clock is right twice a day and these folks um this is a very legitimate concern that i share with them and if they were playing their cards right they'd come to me and say hey Fulta, what are the things you worry about because you're a pretty sharp guy and you're not, you know, um, the bottom line is, is I'm a, I'm a referee and I'm not a cheerleader, right? I, I'm, I'm looking at all of this technology very critically and the things it mm -hmm. does well and the things it can do better. And I'm being very honest in that and it's not perfect. And we know that. Yeah, it's uh, super important. So you are an actual scientist, like you, I, I believe your first, if I'm not mistaken, your first work was uh, with peas and something to do with light sensitivity and uh, like environmental modification using light. Ooh, that's maybe you could funny. talk about. Yeah, yeah, maybe you could talk about that for a minute. Well, that's that's kind of my my original love. I've I've worked at understanding how plants use light as information, and you know, we all think about photosynthesis, right? When plants uh, require light, it's photosynthesis, blah, blah, blah. But it's much, much, much more than that. Any kind of light will be photosynthetic. What I get excited mm -hmm. about is thinking about the information contained in a light beam. And in our, if you think about the rainbow going from way out past the, the blue edge, all the way past the red edge, there's different wavelengths of light and the ones that we're sensitive to are the ones from the blue and green and red and yellow and orange and all that stuff in between. But plants mm. can see way out past the blue and way out past the red. And that information from each individual part of the spectrum excites a separate receptor in the plant. So meaning the, 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 the UV information excites in a receptor that has certain outcomes. The blue has different receptors that excite different outcomes. The same with red or far red, the invisible stuff to us. Mm -hmm. All of these that when the plant perceives them, put together a different output and cause the plant to behave in a different way. And so what we, I studied this for years about how these different pathways worked and how these different places came together and then realized, well, if you can give information through very discrete pathways that cause different changes, what if you were to control that? What if I were to give a plant 
a message based on light signals and maybe maybe monkey with their clock or maybe tell them to get longer or expand their leaves and you can do that with discrete um discrete by touching these discrete sensors just with different kinds of light at different times of the day so fucking amazing (laughs) yeah so we we're we're, you know the people who worry about genetic engineering where you're changing one gene um, in a way that you understand and you know, when we flip the light right, switch right. around, we're changing the expression of thousands and thousands of genes, and we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> but it makes the <laughs> but, but it makes the plant do what we want, and 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 nobody really cares. It just makes a product that they like. Yeah. What what is there anything that um, a product that people would recognize that that was created using this particular method? Well, not so much yet. I think um, a lot of, but people would recognize the process. So when you look mm-hmm. in the um, uh, fancy greenhouses that have the purple lights, like the pink and blue lights that have the weird glow, or if you Google plant factories and in places like Japan where they have these indoor facilities where they grow lettuce on shelves and 100% unnatural lighting. Um, the problem is the carbon footprint of this operation and the cost of this operation. And what I'm obsessed with is how can we, by understanding how a plant sees light, how can we cut back on that? And the people who traditionally have done this kind of work, they've been lighting companies and light engineers. And right. I, I think like a plant, I don't think like an engineer. And I could tell the engineer how to do it better, but they don't listen to me. Um we do the experiments and we show how to help plants grow better in minimal light atmospheres. And, and I think we're going to shape um, a lot about the future of growing plants in urban areas. Not only that, I mean, if you're right, that would be learning how to grow plants on Mars. I mean, that's the, Im- that's the implication of, of this research and it's fucking fantastic. I love it. <laughs> oh, and it's a two-way street, right? When we do cool work here in a in a controlled, what they call a closed controlled environment, basically growing mm. plants in a box, we inform what can be done in outer space. But in outer space, you have other variables like microgravity, and yeah. that informs how we do things here on Earth. And so it's a real give and take between uh, putting plants in funny environments and expecting them to do um, what you need them to do. And what's so cool about that, it's like, and and the analogy I always use is, it's like um, trying to win a dog sled race with chihuahuas. You're (laughs) using genetics that are not effective in that environment. And so we're trying to come up with new genetics, new plants, just by traditional breeding, um, you know, just plant sex that can give us plants Mm -hmm. that will grow in a superior way in controlled environments, whether it's terrestrial or on the space station. That's that's incredible. Do you know if anybody's doing uh, any research into, like, I mean, it, is anybody really doing? I was gonna say radiation environments, and then clicked with mutagenesis. Is anybody even do? Are they still using mutagenesis? Oh sure, yeah, we do all the time. I have, oh, um, okay. you know, I I have a population of uh, mutagenized papayas, <laughs> of all Ooh. things. Oh, I want to get one that is real nice and purple because I like purple fruit, but. There's a lot of things that we do at mutagenesis because it's easy and it's acceptable and it's cheap and and all it takes is a lot of space. And um, 
So, so people do use it. It's a, and mutagenesis is just, uh, just for your listeners who may not know. Thank you. I was <laughs> sorry. Thank um, you. No, that was my bad. <laughs> all, all of the, every trait that you see, everything that you see, that's a genetic difference between one organism and another typically comes from a change in DNA. And so if you have, um, say a population of very uniform plants, you can take their seeds and mutagenize them which means you either expose them to gamma radiation or ionizing radiation or to um, uh, chemicals, different chemicals that'll damage DNA. And you, you literally damage the DNA, but then you plant them out. Most of the seeds are dead and the ones that germinate some small percentage might have the trait you want. Then you can breed them back against the parents or a parent to isolate that trait in the good genetic background. It takes many years, uh, many if you're talking about a tree, but, but even tomatoes take a little while. But this mm -hmm. is the kind of ways that people introduce genetic variation and new traits going back into the 1940s. Yeah, that's like when I think about it, I think about like old time, the atomic age, you know, like totally scrambling, <laughs> scrambling, you know, grapefruit DNA with, <laughs> like freaking uh, gamma rays, like a freaking Hulk, just total. And, and people, a lot of people don't know that that's how they how they used to do it. Like, and in the beginning, before like they we and we really understood, you know, like especially with the techniques techniques now. I mean, they're insanely precise uh, by comparison, certainly. But yeah, people don't know that a lot of our our favorite stuff came from that process, and they're arguing over GMOs and go like, oh, they turned off a gene in a potato you know, string them up, grab the pitchforks. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> they're drinking, you know, non-GMO ruby red grapefruit juice. And I'm just like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> well, it was one of the, one of the traits, one of the ways they got the dark color, the enhanced carotenoid pro profile of some grapefruits was from mutagenesis. Mm. And uh, even right now, if you get really good budwood, like really, I'm mean, sorry, really good, uh, really good variety of uh, citrus that has too many seeds because consumers don't tolerate seeds. It's got great right. flavor. It's got everything great, but it's seedy. Um, you will irradiate the budwood. You irradiate the buds to damage the DNA so that the uh, buds that come out might give you, it might keep most of the stuff the same, but might damage a gene that gives you a viable embryo in the uh, seed. So it gives you fruit without the seed. And uh, that's a very mm. important part of uh, of citrus production or citrus breeding. Now, is that the actual? Is that the typical process for uh, polyploidy manipulations like uh, seedless watermelon? Is it the same process? No, a little different. So, polyploidy is the is a natural plant phenomenon where uh, plants mm. have too many chromosomes. So, as we get one set from mom, one set from dad, plants can sometimes give pollen that maybe a pollen grain that has um four or well too many all right i mean it, it starts getting confusing when we talk about the numbers but rather than one mm -hmm. from mom one from dad maybe you get two from dad and one from mom and in which case you have three sets of chromosomes and that weird odd number the cell doesn't quite know how to deal with that and so you produce um, aborted embryos in the offspring of the next generation. And that's why you have seedless bananas because bananas, yeah. bananas oh, yeah. and plantains naturally have seeds, but this triploid where it's got two from one parent, one from the other means that they can't make viable seeds. 
And that's where we get that. And then seedless watermelons, the same thing. So this this wasn't created through it's not achieved through a process. This is the same like with bananas that they clone them. Basically, that's, with, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, well, well, bananas, every banana you eat is a clone of a single plant that existed at one time point in time. And um, that's what's so amazing and remarkable about bananas. The one we eat most likely in uh, in the in the in the West is the Cavendish banana. And mm. this thing is under threat. This is the coolest story. The um, Cavendish banana is being destroyed by a fungus. So the Cavendish banana, the billions of banana trees that are in these gigantic orchards or uh, banana groves throughout um, uh, Honduras and Ecuador and down into Colombia and South America, the billions of numbers of bananas, they all came from one plant and they're being threatened by a fungus that all came from one fungal cell. (laughs) So it's like a clone killing a clone and, but billions of clones being killed by billions of clones it's a really really neat problem that's uh that's an epic one for sure yeah are you talking about the the xanthomonas oh that's bacterial right yeah, xanthomonas yeah. wilt yeah that's, and that, that's an issue in africa right yeah this is uh fusterium uh, tropical race four is taking out the cavendish oh. banana and um the its predecessor the gros michel was taken out by i think tropical race three and that banana is um is one that it's the one our grandparents and great grandparents ate. Um, I have one growing in my yard. <laughs> no, yeah, I got Do, one. Here. Are those are those the ones that where they got the artificial banana flavoring? Where it kind of tastes like laffy taffy? Is that where they got the <laughs> totally? Yeah, they from. They taste. Like, oh my god! They taste like circus peanuts. You know those like really disgusting orange things. <laughs> they taste like that or Laffy Taffy. It, they have tons of these compounds that we call esters, which are what provide fruit their fruitiness. But the um, the ones in Gros Michel are very distinct. And I've never gotten a banana off of this, but I've eaten them from the Congo when I was in Uganda. And it is an amazing flavor. And I hope to be able to produce them here. Oh, my gosh. Uh, sign me up. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Uh, I am uh, in my homework. I came across strawberries. So there's a cool story there. What, uh, what did you do with strawberries? Well, that's a funny story because I didn't know anything about strawberries and I was hired by into a position that was created by the Florida strawberry industry. Florida produces a hundred percent of the nation's strawberries during a tiny window of the year. So between November and February, um, every strawberry you eat pretty much comes from Florida. Um, now a lot from Mexico, but back when I got hired, it was all Florida. And mm-hmm. they wanted to get people who could um, work in strawberry genomics, which is the um, using computational analysis of whole genomes, looking at all the DNA in an organism to understand the genes that matter. And I didn't um, do this in strawberry. I knew this in Arabidopsis, which is a model plant, and um, was kind of a pioneer in that area. And um, uh, I got hired here to do strawberry because the the industry had this huge vision of, oh, we need this in strawberry for sure. And they knew this way back in 2000. And I came here to work on this, and I was kind of a black sheep because everybody here is very... um, 
it's an outstanding faculty at the University of Florida, but also very field oriented. And I was a laboratory guy and they said, well, he's going to work on strawberries at a, one of our departmental meetings. And everybody laughed like, yeah, yeah, that idiot's going to work on strawberries. And then I said, you know, yep, I never even seen a strawberry tree. <laughs> <laughs> played right into it <laughs> and uh and uh, but then uh seven years later was leading the strawberry genome sequencing project and uh two years after that we had a fully sequenced uh genome for strawberry so we knew every dna sequence and um still work in strawberries quite a bit so it's uh it's one of the crops that we work in that's so cool are we ever going to have blue ones like the Photoshop promises? <laughs> you know, th that stupid Photoshop thing cost me like at least three and a half days of my life because because <laughs> the industry, the folks in the industry will say they'll send me a note and say, Folta, we need you to debunk this, please. You know, and because because I work for the growers, I work for the state, I work for, you know, I'm a public scientist and right. they need it. I got to do it. Um, I had to do a lot of writing on that. And. But, but really what we're trying to do that's the coolest thing is identify where are the genetics of flavor because the wild strawberries taste really good and they're mushy little weird things. And what we're working on or what we have in the industry are these kind of large, watery, solid things that you can ship across the country. And that's right. because breeders did this amazing job of selecting for that. That's what they needed. How many red things can you put in your basket and how many, uh, how big can they be and how far can they ship? And when those are your priorities, flavors and aromas come later. And that wasn't the big focus, but the genetics for that stuff exist out in the wild and in old strawberry varieties. And so how can we use modern genetic tools to bring those back really fast? And that's what we're working on in strawberries, identifying all the complexities of what makes a strawberry fruit taste good and how do we find those genes that control that. That's awesome. And that's one of those things that's gonna gonna shift people a little bit, I think, when they, when they when a consumer can see it, you know, because a lot of a lot of the work that's been done from from my interpretation, a lot of the work that's been done so far has been to benefit the farmers, which is fantastic. But consumers don't see that really, and they don't they don't get that. So I think that's kind of a big part of what's fueling the anti-GMO movement. Well, the straw. Well, you're right, and but the strawberry work too is the same same problem. But it's traditional breeding. This isn't genetic engineering work. This is yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is doing old school plant sex. This is rubbing plant parts on plant parts, and you know, <laughs> putting on some nice music, <laughs> taking some plants out for dinner, and then you know, uh, we we uh, just do plant sex. And the problem is you have to emasculate a flower, which they don't necessarily like. And then they don't have pollen on that variety. Then we bring it from somewhere else. And then the next generation, we try to get what we're trying to do is use plant sex to get all of the good, favorable genes in one place. And we think that's going to give us much better tasting fruit. Nice. But in the process, are you are you identifying um, from the DNA perspective are you identifying the specific genes that are controlling these things and kind of 
Yeah, that, that that's what my lab Ma- does. mapping that a little bit. Yeah, you got oh, okay. it. That's a, so so the the breeding and all of the stuff they do is done by a guy named Dr. Vance Whitaker, who runs the strawberry breeding program. Uh, my lab just does the validation. We we use genetics and all these really cool computational tricks to identify the genes that matter. And a guy named Dr. Chris Barbie, who's in my program, um, he's d- amazing at this stuff. And he um, identifies something like 50 different chromosomal locations where there's a gene that makes a strawberry taste better. And now it's a question of how do we get all of those into one place? And that's that's a pretty difficult job. But I think the, the overall goal is how do you get consumers to eat more fruit and vegetables? And yeah. if it tastes better, I think they'll do it. So that's our mission. Yeah, it's amazing. So you're constantly attacked as like the GMO guy who works for Monsanto. But to be clear, you don't actually use modern biotechnology techniques <laughs> techniques in your research. Oh, the <laughs> irony is is a horrible thing, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah, I'm I'm attacked as being the genetic engineering guy who works for Monsanto. But I work for the Florida Strawberry Growers. They fund my projects, and I do work for USDA, who funds our light work. And so the taxpayer and the strawberry consumer really are who fund our work. And it's not GMO work. I just think that genetic engineering holds tremendous process or tremendous potential, especially for the developing world. And I've seen extreme poverty. I've stood with the people who are who are literally dying from malnutrition and I've shaken those little hands. And um, it, it when you have technology and solutions for them that can't be used it's a very um visceral thing and a very emotional thing so my, my job every day to day has nothing to do with genetic engineering or gmo you know commercialization but what mm-hmm. we do do is do some really cool science but but i but i still support that and i love the idea that people work on that and focus on that particularly for applications in the developing world Absolutely. The the golden rice thing, it really breaks my heart how much suffering has happened just because of a handful of very loud idiots. Meanwhile, millions of children are dying and starving and it's it's hard to think about the golden rice story. Maybe you could talk about that for a minute. Well, vitamin A deficiency is a problem in the developing world, and it is much, much, much more pervasive than people know about. Um, Vitamin A comes from digestion of beta carotene, so the orange stuff in carrots. And and we take Mm -hmm. it in in carrots and leafy greens and vegetables. That's the source is, is really from plants. And a lot of these folks who are in the developing world, they may not have access to those kinds of fresh leafy greens. They eat a lot of world food staples like rice or cassava or potato or, or brinjal or um, um, uh, corn maybe, or, or that maybe I said that already. But everything that you that is consumed typically is relatively low in this really critical nutrient. And so blindness is a huge problem. And it's because, you know, how, you know, grandma always said, eat your carrots. It's because beta yeah. carotene is cut and down the middle into something, you know, pro-vitamin A, which is turns into vitamin A that our bodies take up and it um, allows us to see. It's part of the mechanism of vision. 
if you don't have vitamin A, you lose your vision, but you also lose functions of the immune system. You also lose uh, critical functions of the body physiologically. And what you end up with is a series of different diseases and disorders that are just general disorders. And these children die of diarrhea. They die of malnutrition, of not being able to absorb nutrients normally. So first you lose your vision, then you die. And um, the numbers are too high to even count or estimate. And aid workers go into these villages and they put a few drops of beta carotene and oil on their tongues and that holds them for six months um scientists back in the 1990s that figured out that if you could put beta carotene from the plants that produce it things like daffodils and carrots into world food staples like rice you could provide rice that would give vitamin a and they came up with golden rice now almost 20 years old hasn't been used yet um, they've come up with uh, soybeans that make massive amounts of vitamin A or beta carotene, which is it's, it's, it's oil soluble. So it's it, soybean oil, uh, you know, just loaded with the stuff. They've made potatoes that are high in, in vitamin A and beta carotene. So there's a whole bunch of different vegetables now that have this and can be used to alleviate that suffering. Yet they have been vigorously blocked and opposed by by good folks like Greenpeace um mm. who does a lot of good things they really screwed up with vitamin a and beta carotene it because it, it's pretty much just them right that are that had won that fight to get golden rice introduced into africa and southeast asia well golden well greenpeace has been one of the major organizations working against it but they're not alone there's many um and too many to count and a lot of it is because if this first gene that produces a natural compound were to be a success, the whole fear campaign comes down. Yeah. And I've stood in the bananas. So in the Kenya and Uganda area, uh, Rwanda, the lakes area of, of Africa, um, they have vitamin A deficiency, but they eat a lot of the, what they call matoke. It's a banana that is like a real starchy one. And you eat that as the basis of the meal. And I stood in the field where when you cut one open, it was orange. And uh, it was amazing. And this could solve the problem, but those children who are going blind are on the other side of a barbed wire fence and they don't have access to this. And that is a very um, serene moment for a scientist when the scientists of Africa saw a problem and they fixed it and politics stops them from delivering it. And I think it's, it's, it's an atrocity. It's a, it's just an absolute atrocity. Yeah. It's tough to think about. It really is. Um, that was one of the, the bigger parts of the uh, food evolution movie that really kind of hit me getting to uh, seeing that part of it. And like, mm -hmm. here are these crops that could be saving the fucking planet basically and they're they're stuck behind the fence you can't use them can't eat them well, those, them away. those are mostly for uh, bacterial wilt and food evolution yeah, which yeah, everybody yeah. should see um but it, it blows you away when you see how hard people from africa who want to help the people of their continent and mostly of their region um with a really important solvable problem and they do it 
you know, they, they did it. This was Dr. Priver Nemanja and uh, with help with Dr. James Dale from University of Queensland in Australia and others, they solved this problem. Yet their solution is tied up in politics. And it's almost like if you were to say, we have a drug that we could deliver to solve this problem, but um, Merck isn't allowing us to do it. People would be up in arms. They'd be screaming for, you know, release this. Why are you letting people die? You know, big, bad companies. But it, somehow if it's activists that are blocking it, people look the other way. No. Um, it's blocking technology from the people who need it desperately. And, and that's just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Shifting to a, uh... A lighter note, let's call it. Um, I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit a little close to home. Cool. Uh, I wanted to talk to you for a minute about citrus greening. Maybe explain what that is, and then the current state. What in Florida right now? What is the state of that fight against citrus greening? Yeah, well, the the current state of this is all the way out to California, unfortunately, um, using the other state. Um, mm. So citrus greening disease is a disease that's a bacterial disease that's spread by an insect. And the bacterium is, um, uh, we call it um, uh, class for its Liberobacter asiaticus. And it's spread by this insect vector, this insect that, that takes a bite out of an infected tree and goes to another tree and bites and spreads the bacteria. But the bacteria, um, as it goes from tree to tree, remains latent. It, it's very slow growing. And so what happens is all these trees are infected, but they look fine. And then you see entire groves start to crash three to five, 10 years later. And um, Florida got this infection back in 2003, apparently from an imported tree from Vietnam that brought the bacteria, and then the insect was here, I guess. And it spread throughout the entire state within a decade. And now um, it's in 100% of groves in Florida, probably not mine. I, I live a little far from other citrus, so mine are asymptomatic still at my place. But if you go out to, um, it's throughout all of the citrus states, Texas and Arizona, and now it's in California. And so you're seeing uh, fresh set, fresh uh, citrus as well as juice oranges being devastated by this. And it's completely destroyed the industry here in Florida. It still exists, but it's probably at 50% of what it was 10 years ago. Wow. And uh, I heard that there have been some efforts to fight this. Where, where, what's the status on those? Well, they're doing everything. They are breeding resistant rootstocks. So citrus is two parts. It's the roots and the thing above the ground, the scion, which come from two different uh, things that are grafted together. And coming up with superior rootstocks and superior scions has been one part of that um, of crusade but also genetic engineering and using genetic engineering to create resistant uh, material. The other thing has been changing nutrition and using different nutrition regimens to help uh, the trees be productive longer, uh, using antibiotics in some cases where you could suppress the bacteria and help the tree live. We've been throwing everything except the kitchen. No, we did throw the kitchen sink at it too. <laughs> We've thrown everything at this. And, um, uh, right now, the current state of the, the research says uh, the best thing in my mind is what they call citrus tristeza virus. It's a lot like immunotherapy in humans where they're using things like polio virus and herpes virus to fight cancer. 
Citrus Drostasia virus infects citrus and causes disease, but there's some kinds that we grow now, or most of the ones we grow now are resistant to it. They don't really care. So what if you could get Citrus Drostasia virus to deliver a payload? You genetically engineer the virus, infect the tree, and then the virus gives the tree the instructions to make uh, proteins that attack the bacterium. And to me, I think this is a tremendously um, high pro promise area because you can't make new trees fast enough. And so how do you protect the ones we have in the meantime? And um, I think that's got a lot of promise. We covered it on the podcast not too long ago with Dr. Steve Savage. Um, mm -hmm. but, but it's something that I think has a really, really great potential. Yeah, that's amazing. What other crops um, around the world are you most worried about? Which ones do you think are the most at risk of something like what happened to the gross Michelle? Well, yeah, well, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You have fusarium uh, in bananas. You have diseases in um, olive in the Mediterranean right now. Yeah. The thousand-year-old trees are now dying um of um, um uh, xylella fastidiosa it's a s disease that's spread by an insect you have um uh um a lot of wheat diseases and other diseases that are caused by different um pathogens that um can be potentially de devastating the old favorites like um uh, phytophthora and festins, which are the ones that cause the Irish potato famine. Those are still right. out there and still really potent in, in destroying crops of potatoes. But probably the biggest threat in the developing world right now, if I had to pick one thing that has tremendous potential to cause harm, is the fall armyworm. And on the African continent, they got it from us. This is a, a caterpillar that makes a little parachute that spins a little web, catches on the wind, and can fly 60 kilometers. Um, it can go a long way, and this thing runs everywhere. And when it multiplies, it's like a carpet that walks across the ground and kills everything in its path. And so fall armyworm is a significant problem with maize, with tomato, with everything in the developing world right now. Or, I mean, sorry, in Africa right now and uh, getting worse. And has wow. uh, it's the first time I've heard somebody say um, the word famine in a long time. This has the possibility of causing widespread famine in the continent, and um, it is a significant threat. What can be done to address it, do you think? Well, there's a couple of things that have been suggested, and one is making plants that are resistant, and the University of Florida has some of those being done, uh, corn uh, maize varieties that are being done. That's some work that's being done downstate by a breeder down there. But the other big trick you can do is genetic engineering. And there's two ways to do that. You can genetically engineer the plant to resist the fall armyworm. You can also en engineer fall armyworms that when they mate with the ones that are out there, um, make them sterile. So the next generation are dead. They just can't survive. And so this kind of idea of fall armyworm, um, what, what they've been doing in mosquitoes for a long time, which is a way of using mutations to suppress the populations. You can do it with genetic engineering very precisely. Um, this is something that's being done by the Oxitech company. It's also something we've covered on the podcast. 
-hmm. The other thing they do are something called gene drives, which are ways that you incorporate deleterious genetics into a population that spread very quickly. And um, all of these options are on the table. Um, different governments have different rules, and it's really hard to say what's going to happen next. But um, I think about this problem almost every day because it has tremendous potential to harm millions of people. Yeah. It's, uh, oof. I, I had no idea about this one. So uh, thanks for putting that in the in my <laughs> back of my head there to one more thing to freak out about. Yeah, well, I, I, got, um, I got a million of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but it, but seriously, it is. These are problems that we are very immune to in the industrialized world. And when we sit back and say, "Well, I'm not going to have GMOs in my food or wheat or whatever or gluten or whatever," you know, we got such first world problems. And when I look at what's going on over there, um, it it amazes me that we worry about the things we do because. Um, every day still, um, it's, it's 20 or 30 some thousand people die a day of malnutrition. And, um, that's, that's a problem for me. And, uh, especially when we have tools to fix at least part of that. Shifting gears. Um, what are some of the biofortified crops that you think are either here already or on the horizon aside from aside from golden rice and uh, golden banana and are there any other cool ones that you're excited about well for biofortification so meaning you're adding nutrition via genetic engineering or or not mm -hmm. by genetic engineering by traditional breeding um you know biofortification is something that we can look at in a couple different ways i think the um, orange flesh sweet potato in africa is huge that's not a genetic engineering thing that's traditionally bred. And whether you are from Tanzania or Mozambique or um, Western Africa, you have different ideas about what a sweet potato is and what your you know regionally acceptable one is. Africa is a really complex tapestry and people's food expectations are very different. And so having local breeders come up with the next varieties. And this is all Bill and Melinda Gates money stuff. Um, they're making tremendous impacts and won the 2016 World Food Prize for it, which is really appropriate. Nice. What do you, th what would you say is your favorite success story? Um, probably the BT brinjal. And the brinjal is the eggplant um, in India because India was looking at genetically engineering a eggplant which would resist this thing called the fruit and shoot borer and it's a beetle larvae that kills or burrows into the um, eggplant and leaves poop and destroys the fruit it makes it not edible or saleable mm -hmm. and these small growers grow tons of this in um in india bangladesh pakistan it's a very important fruit crop and um they use massive amounts of sprays old school insecticides um, organophosphates, carbamates, um, stuff that we had banned in the States years ago. And these are people who go out with a backpack sprayer and a, um, and a, uh, scarf over their mouth to spray their plants. And, um, they use these old school insecticides and they do it almost every day because it's your family's crop and you got to protect it. 
because you're going to sell it for your family's money and the insect is everywhere. So what they did was they used genetic engineering to install a gene called the BT gene. This is, makes it that protein that's used in organic agriculture inside mm -hmm. the uh, eggplant. And when it starts, when the insect comes and starts nibbling on it, it dies. It's not toxic to humans. It's a natural protein. It goes away when we eat it, digest it like any other mm -hmm. nutrition. But it is. It first went to a handful of farmers, two in the next year is 20, and this is in 2014. Now there's 30,000 in Bangladesh. It originally was designed for India, and it got all the way through the approval process until it got to the highest level, and then the activists pressured them into denying it. So it went to Bangladesh. Um, the ag minister, she's probably four and a half feet tall and very, very powerful woman says, I want this for my people in my environment. And she's a scientist or an engineer. So she got it and she implemented it. She gave it out to a handful of farmers. And now it's 30,000 plus farmers using this eggplant, cutting their sprays from a hundred a season to two. And it now is being smuggled into India and Indian farmers are planting it in defiance of the law, risking going to jail because they want the crop that will help them uh, farm more sustainably. That's a great success story. Yeah. That's my favorite one too. <laughs> like the, the uh, rainbow papaya one is really cool. Awesome. Um, but I, I think the BT Brinjal thing is, is, has got to be my favorite. Well, when you think of the number of lives it's changed and the families it's transformed and the, the, the people who it's now, the kids can go to school because they don't have to go pick the bugs off the plants. I mean, that's what it's like there. And uh, if you want to see a really good video on this, look up Well Fed. And it's a documentary by a guy named Hide Borsma, who's a Dutch filmmaker who is uh, also a PhD in molecular biology. And he goes to Bangladesh and shows the Brinjal and, um, and how it works. It's a wonderful, wonderful video. I will put a link to that in the show notes so that you can get that out there for people. Yeah, the Cornell so, Alliance for Science also has a lot of very good links to that, and it's worth looking at. So, and also on my podcast, we have a, maybe three or absolutely. four, three or four episodes that are dedicated to the BT Brinjal, going back to uh, maybe episode forty-eight and episode one ninety-six, I think, or one ninety-four. I don't know. They all bleed together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been going for a while. So what, five, six years? Well, um, four years and um, oh. four years of, um, of uh, we're in our fifth year, oh, I God. always like to say. Yeah. And it's been almost every Saturday. The only time I cut back was wow. in the beginning when I was under just massive attack by activists and uh, my university and others said, you know, get your head down and, and just don't produce media for a while, which broke my heart. It was the saddest days of my life. You know, when you tell a scientist you not are not allowed to share science um that was tough times yeah for sure i was gonna try to not not i was gonna not avoid but you know the controversy and stuff i wanted to keep it a little light yeah that's cool but yeah what, ha what happened to you was really unfair <laughs> it's is that still going on um it i still get a lot of grief but i've had to keep changing my strategies to avoid the grief um, mostly not see it 
you know, for a long time, um, I would take screenshots and I would really think about it. And I would, um, I'm compiling a book of what it's like to teach science in 2015 through 19, um, with all the hate I get and all the fire I get. And, uh, it just became too much because it starts to affect you psychologically in ways you can't control. And I always thought I was a strong dude. I'm cause I am, I'm pretty resilient, but when you read things about you that aren't true and you see your Google profile destroyed and you're dragged through the mud and you know, you'd never have another job again or a decent, you know, friends or relationships or, you know, people you interact with. Um, that's over for me. Um, until someone really gets to know me through a network, it's, it's, that's okay. But you would never come talk to me out of the blue if you read Google first. And, um, that's a tough one to live with. And so, uh, I've had to kind of divorce myself from all the negative media and all the negative stuff because it just becomes, it starts to affect you no matter how tough you are. It starts to affect you. Yeah. And didn't you step back from Twitter recently? Yeah. A month ago I, I deactivated my Twitter account because of the endless abuse. And it was, um, about a dozen accounts that were just every day saying things about me that aren't true, putting them out to, and they're horrible things, putting them out to my, uh, you know, the folks who follow me, but then also a lot of bots that were programmed to put out false information six, seven, ten times a day. And I can't do my job as a public scientist and do top-notch research and educate students and train the next generation of scientists and write stuff and do a podcast. Um, and at the same time, you know, watch myself be taken apart on this other medium. And so I had to really separate from that. And I did some really nice work in the last month. But once you um, deactivate a Twitter account for 30 days, it's completely deleted. Mm -hmm. And so in the last week, I've sat here going, well, it's come. It's day 28 out of 30. I've got 23,000 followers who do care. And do I stop providing that content to those folks because of you know, a couple dozen accounts that want me to quit. And when you do the math on that, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to quit because of these loud bots and, and trolls and deny sharing science to people who really want it. And when I did that math in my head, it just didn't compute. Yeah. Cause you're letting them win at that point. I'm giving them what they want and yeah. giving them what they want. And, and, um, I'm a brawler. I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm not, I don't do that. Um, and, uh, I don't fold. And so I had to sit down and really, you know, figure out where I was, but it is, uh, it is psychological warfare when you look in the mirror and you see who, you know, and then you look at your online profiles and persona and see how you're being described and what people say about you. And if you do a Google images search of me, I mean, I'm, I'm there in jail and handcuffs. I'm, you know, Pinocchio noses as a jester hats. I mean, um, I, I'm destroyed as far as, you know, Google goes, Google search, but, um, uh, all I can, so you can do two things. You can quit, which is what they want you to do, or you can, in spite of it, continue to develop massive amounts of really positive forward thinking media. 
and increase the followership and do better work and um, focus on that. And, and also stand up and fight for other scientists who are going under the same bus that you're already under. And all those things I've found tremendous um, um, comfort in doing all those things. Yeah, it's awesome. It's uh, it's needed. I I I want to say I don't know if I could do it, but I guess I am about to find out. <laughs> well, you are doing it. Uh, but you are doing it, and you're doing exactly what everybody needs to do. Is that people who care need to find their medium, whether it's hosting a podcast, whether it's writing for Medium, whether it's writing for the Genetic Literacy Project, whether it's you know writing for an, an, a note to the editor, going on Twitter and correcting something that's wrong going into the bowels of the comments section of an article and saying, that's not the way I see it. Here's what I know. You know, that's what everybody needs to do. And that's how we fix it. And it's not just genetic engineering and food. It's, you know, it, oh, it, you know, it's pushing back against the, the dirty dozen and all that stuff, but it's also about, you know, we got measles outbreaks. We got um, homeless um, problems in LA, Portland, and Seattle that are insurmountable where you're going to see typhus and plague and diseases we haven't known since the dark ages coming back because of people living in squalor. You know, these are the things that we as a online community need to attack. And, um, you know, we need to focus on those things. And I, th and I think that's why all of our voices need to be elevated using the best media possible. So congratulations. No, Good job. Well, and, uh, <laughs> I, well, thank you. And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm honored to, to be able to have you on this show it was kind of a, it was a, it was a big ask from a nobody. And I was like, wow, well, damn, here you well, are. you're not a nobody. You're a guy with a microphone <laughs> and a guy who is willing to put in the, the time to do it. And, uh, you know, there was a time that I started in this business, um, you know, as a guy with a microphone willing to put in the time to do it too. And, uh, I don't forget that. And I think it's important that, you know, my goal is if I can get, you to be uber successful and we can get dozens of other people to be uber successful then i don't have to do it as much and i could spend time with my dog and my wife and go out and you know play with my trees and talk to my chickens that's what i want to do and so you know this is about empowering more people to carry that mantle so i encourage anybody who's out there who wants to participate in the conversation to do it and recruit people like me to help you and develop your networks and give you opportunities you know we're glad to do that that's awesome just to kind of close out the uh biotech part of the interview formal interview what do you see on the horizon that you're just super excited about what do you think the future applications well are? right now the hot thing is um CAR T cells in human therapies. And these are genetically engineered T cells. So the soldiers of our immune system are now given new equipment to surveillance uh, or surveil and identify and destroy cancer cells. And so these cells are now being mobilized against many different major cancers as well as um, HIV and other viral diseases. And they have cured mice from HIV using this as part of the therapy. And in humans, it's really hard to eliminate HIV because it goes into your own genes, it becomes part of your DNA. But it, right. it, these are cells that are targeted to the tissues where the virus replicates, where it destroys the virus very efficiently. 
And um, right now, this new stuff called CAR-T, so C-A-R hyphen T, and um, this is a hot thing, and I hope everybody looks at it because it's now being um, successfully used in clinical trials against uh, prostate cancer, many cases against aggressive brain cancers like glioblastoma. Um, All kinds of cancers are being targeted with these new um, immunotherapies, and that is just amazing. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's not just uh, plants. You know, biotechnology is, is the biotechnology and medicine part trips me out when when I think about what we could conceivably do in the next. I mean, hundred years from now, what's this technology going to be like? We're going to look like cavemen. <laughs> I, I, you know, you but know. that's not even fair. I would say ten years from now, we're not going to recognize it. I mean, it's going that fast. Yeah. And if you go into um, uh, Google News and put in gene editing or the words CRISPR, C R I S P R, you'll get a dozen news headlines of massive breakthroughs that are happening in mice or monkeys or sometimes even humans um, where these newest technologies are solving an important medical problem and this is real and it is now and anybody who's interested in a really fast-paced career um, you know brush up on your science and grab a grab an end to this thing and hold on because this is uh, the students who are coming up right now are so damn lucky because they will participate in revolutions in medicine and agriculture that they could have never anticipated. Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to see where this is going from where I'm standing because just watching the past, you know, watching these accelerations and just learning about, wait, you can do that? You can just go turn off a gene and tell the plant not to, you know, make this? That's just, most people hearing them, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the beauty of, of the stuff in agriculture is you can turn off a gene with great precision. And as I always say, it's, you know, in the old days, genetic engineering was going into the library and leaving a new book on the shelf. Now, genetic engineering is going into the library and erasing a letter out of a book and then leaving and no one knows you're there. And completely changing the, the meaning of that book. So uh, the one you always use or I use is, is the Bible. It's like going into the Ten Commandments and erasing the word not. <laughs> you know, everything is radically different from now on, right? Because you completely flip the uh, information of that particular text to a completely different meaning. And that's what gene editing allows you to do. Take a gene that makes a plant susceptible to make it resistant, to make a compound that is present to make it absent to take something that's being turned off that now you can turn it on um you can make chickens with teeth and arms <laughs> <laughs> yeah what uh where was it listed was it i'm like thinking was that your show that it was you had the game? oh yeah yeah i had jack horner on who was the dinosaur yeah yeah so so yeah. Uh, but but well chickens <laughs> he contends are modern dinosaurs and i agree oh, damn things look like modern dinosaurs but the idea is is that these um that birds are direct descendants of dinosaurs and that things like um wings and beaks are are new traits and that the old traits of teeth and little hands and claws and, and little forelimbs, that's all still banging around in the genome and you just have to turn them back on. And he's done it. <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. Go listen to that episode, guys, because it's uh, I listened to like 80 science podcasts and I had to be like, wait a minute. I remember hearing this. Oh, wait, that was your yeah, show. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so that, that was a super cool. That one. was a lot of fun. Uh, 
<laughs> you have been very, very generous with your time, and I know it's valuable. But did you want to run through a couple uh, rapid fire bonus questions from the I audience? I love it. Let's do it. All right. So uh, I reached out uh, to a, a small circle of people that I know that uh, are kind of tangentially related. So this is from uh, Jeff Mowry. He wants to know what your thoughts are on the impact of a glyphosate ban, uh, if there are alternatives and what you see for the future of glyphosate. Well, a glyphosate ban would be devastating, and it would be particularly devastating to the American or North American farmer um, who uses this in order to produce crops more sustainably. And you would have to go back to older technologies like atrazine, which have tremendously more environmental impact uh, to do the same work. And... Um, you would only ban glyphosate in places like the U.S. and Canada. You know, Austria, other places have already done it. But you're not going to ban it from China. You're not going to ban it in, Austria, in um, um, Argentina or Brazil. And those countries will then fill the gap that our farmers leave behind. And I think it would be a tremendous strike for the American farmer. Um, it would hurt us tremendously. So I, I think we may lose it. Um, it's hard to say what's going to happen at this point. Are there any, is anybody even working on an alternative maybe? Yeah, we are. <laughs> you, maybe uses the same, uh, oh. No, my lab works on. Does it use similar uh, pathways? Well, my lab works on an alternative, works on uh, new herbicides made from uh, um, random genetic information. Um, th there are no other alternatives. And to get a new herbicide, registered and approved takes decades. And so losing glyphosate would be a horrible travesty. The big question is, is where does so much of the information about it and the misinformation come from? And it's activist groups, but I sometimes wonder, the conspiracy side of me says, are these foreign governments that say, if you can erode the trust in the US food supply, that's its Achilles oh, yep. heel. And there's some evidence that suggests that's true. And yeah, so the Russia, stuff. yeah, the Russia stuff. I'm a, I want to do, uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to cover the Russia stuff in general in another episode. And then I want, I do want to do a whole episode just about glyphosate because it's another one of those stories that's just, yeah. Yeah. I, pisses well, you I can give you good, when, when they I can give you good um, references on that. And, and the Russia stuff, there's a great guy too. I think it's Greg Darius at Iowa state university that they looked on social media for different misinformation and they stumbled into the Russian angle on genetic engineering. And uh, so there, there is a lot of logic behind the idea of you're not going to beat the USA with bombs and, uh, and, and modern weapons, but you can beat them if you can turn the American public against its own farmers. And it worked in Stalinist Russia. It's worked in many other contexts. If you can get people to not trust the food, you can uh, make tremendous headway into influencing that population. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. I'm going to cover that in a whole full that need that needs to, like a multi-part series i think uh <laughs> moving on this is from keith sone he says do you think more people going vegan or vegetarian is a way to combat climate change and or help sustain the planet why or why not well you know keith here it's a good point and i i do think that when you're feeding and you're talking to a guy who was a vegetarian for 16 years um not anymore um that when you're taking 35 pounds of 
grain to make a pound of beef and 1500 gallons of water. There's a question about resource allocation there and can that be done sustainably? And, you know, our farmers and ranchers do a great job of that. Um, our producers are great, but I, I agree with you. That I think more people who are, um, and I always said, if you want to take out the big egg companies, stop eating meat because um, it, most of the food, most of the grain that's produced, the corn and soy and whatnot goes towards animal feed. And right. so, you know, don't participate in that activity if that's something that concerns you. Oh, and then about towards climate change, uh, potentially it could have effects there as well. But, you know, right now the biggest uh, drivers of climate change in, in my mind are just the use of fossil fuels. And countries like India and China with massive number of people coming online um, looking for middle class options in terms of driving and energy use that not everybody in the world can do it like we do in terms of uh, our abuse of fossil fuel. Yeah. This is from Carrie Zambrano. She says, how, if at all, can we stress the safety of a scientific process to the general public who is on the fence? <laughs> yeah. And, and the funny part about that, Carrie, is you can't do it by pounding people with more science. And I did it for years and it failed. And what you have to remind people is why you do what you do. Why are you worried? Why are you concerned? And why is science important? You have to lead with why. Uh, Simon Simic has great videos on YouTube about this. You lead with why it's important. And for me, I always say it's about farmers, the consumer, the environment, and the food insecure. And those are the things that I worry about. And um, then I use technology to make it better. And I think that's the way scientists have to communicate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Nicholas Jankowski asks... It's a long one. <laughs> what non-pesticide related GMO killer app is the next that could actually be marketed to the poisoned well public to make people want bioengineered food? Arctic apples are in this weird limbo that people think they should hate, even though they have no good reason. I thought pink pineapple might do it. It's just stupid enough. <laughs> people would say, if it's pink, I want it. <laughs> so he wants to know what the, what the magic GMO that we can make to get to get people on board and, and stop giving a shit. I got my answer, but I'm curious about yours. Well, I, I love that idea. Um, it, it would be, I wanted to do something called GM orange and I wanted to make a purple orange juice that was uh, also gave the tree, the anti greening trait. And uh, I thought if you did this all oh. together and came right out and said, this is the, the orange that saved the industry and it's purple full of healthy compounds, you know, that'd be great. Um, but I think the thing that's going to flip it for me is um, the success of the BT Brinjal in Bangladesh as it moves into the Philippines, um, as uh, golden rice comes online and actually success stories start coming out of it. I think um, mm. for the most part, there's not as many people on the fence as there used to be. I also think gene editing, this idea of being able to adjust one single letter in a DNA code as that becomes to make more medical breakthroughs successful that uh, people will go, Hey, you know, I'm kind of comfortable with this, you know? So I think it'll be a combination mm -hmm. of all those things. Yeah. Uh, my, my answer that I had down, cause I love this question. Uh, I have a non-browning avocado. Oh. 
Yes. Because if there's one way to get crunchy yoga moms and millennial hipsters to stop giving a fuck about GMOs, make them a non-browning avocado. Oh, no kidding. Because that's the problem with guacamole. You've got to eat it all right exactly. now. Yeah. It's, it's a blessing and a curse. Because I, <laughs> I guess the kids are eating it on toast now. I don't know. Well, if I, if I, if, cause if I buy, I get avocados on sale and I go, okay, I'm going to make some guacamole. And you make it and now you make like, you know, a gallon of it. And now you, you can't not eat it all you know or if you make it for a party right. you got to take the remainder home and then it's like all night eating guacamole and you know guacamole mojitos and everything else but we, we you know but, mm. but i love that idea totally doable i i using uh is anybody working on that using rna i'm absolutely sure and i'm sure they're using uh gene editing so they're using the crispr cas9 or the talon system one of the ways to use gene editing to eliminate the gene polyphenol oxidase, the thing that catalyzes the reaction with oxygen to create the brown color. That's gonna be knocked out of avocados and bananas and other fruits that turn brown. And we already got those in uh, a few different potatoes and uh, apples. That's right, right. in uh, potato and apple. It's been done. And so, you know, why why you wouldn't do avocados first is beyond me. I know, right? <laughs> the other one is that's actually I I know this one's in the pipeline. That's a gluten-free wheat. I think that would be another one that'll go a long way. Yeah, that's with these because people people are gonna get get cognitive dissonance like the <laughs> going down because there's so much overlap between like the the health fads and non-GMO gluten-free, even though that's legitimate with like one percent of the people who buy gluten-free stuff. Uh, but anyway, you know, that's, that's one of the, it's one of the head exploders because you would be able to, uh, it has been done. People have removed, um, gluten, um, from wheat, well, some of the gluten proteins, which are gladden and this thing, um, the, the other one, I forgot, can't remember what it is. Uh, glutenin, there's two proteins, gladden and glutenin, right. and they've mutagenized the part, which causes the, uh, allergy. And so you still make good bread still has some reasonable structure and it just doesn't have the allergic allergenic or allergenic proteins. The one that is, um, uh, gosh, it, it, it came and went in my brain really quick, but, but though I know what it was is years ago, we talked about making Franken pot because we figured this would really throw a, a stick in the spokes of the people who hate the technology because a lot of them were aficionados of, of hemp and associated cannabis products. Uh, and we thought it, that's, that would have been a good answer. Yeah. I used to own <laughs> frankenpot.com and then uh, we, we, we were going to put a website up talking about the beauty of GMO and how it could be used to make the products they cared about the most better. And we figured that would be a cognitive dissonance tester. <laughs> Uh, that's amazing uh last question here at the risk of becoming controversial that's me saying uh jeff also wants to know in a say like in a paragraph what's your opinion of organic agriculture i love it because what they're trying to do is grow more with less inputs fewer inputs and inputs which might be more compatible with um with the environment and I'm all for that. And I support that. And, and uh, as a department chair, when I was doing that job, supported lots of students and uh, research in that area. What I don't like is when the products that come from it get kind of a free pass and a halo or when the techniques, which actually aren't as sustainable necessarily, 
um, are touted as sustainable because they're organic. Uh, it takes a lot more labor, takes a lot more fuel in a lot of cases, but, um, you know, I'm all for the research and I love the idea that people think about it. And when we look at agriculture 50 years from now, you're going to see the best of the organic techniques coupled to the best of the stuff from the laboratory and lots of things we never could even anticipate yet. Um, all tools on the table on the way to sustainable agriculture. One awesome answer. Professor Folta, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is this was really, really fun. You're a cool no, guy. No, it was totally fun, and I, I loved it. And uh, just let me know anytime you want to do round two. We can do it. That's really great. Congrats on doing a good podcast. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, Kevin Folta, host of the Talking Biotech Podcast. I believe that's just TalkingBiotechPodcast.com, correct? That's right. And you are also at KevinFolta.com. That's right. And at Kevin Folta on the Twitters, where it's a one-way path. I, I won't engage you there, but I will give you stuff. <laughs> so if it, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, if you have questions or concerns, look me up on the internet and find my email address. You can find it in many different places, along with my home address and social security number and many other. <laughs> That's <laughs> And, and how many gigabytes of emails? I, I know. It's, it's insane what I go through. <laughs> oh, but um, that's a story for another day, but uh, all, all very positive. So reach out if I can be of assistance. Thanks again to Professor Folta for coming on the show. Make sure to check out the show notes for some great resources if you want to learn more. Also, stay tuned for part two of this series. We have another great guest coming up. Our website is mindwave.media. You can follow us on Twitter at mindwavepodcast. And if you like the show and want to help us out, please share this episode with a friend. And if you have a minute, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps get the show out there so more people can find it. Uh, special thanks to our patron, Travis Meyer. If you want to be cool like Travis and help support the show, head over to patreon.com slash mindwave and send us a couple bucks a month. It goes a long way in helping making this show possible. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Stargazer. Copyright 2019.